Yeah. But again, that's it. again the feminine, right? Yeah. Encouraging the masculine, not like you, Jack. You know, <laughs> can't you find a place for me to have my damn baby? <laughs> the hell's the matter with you? Call yourself a man, you know? Yeah. Um. Thank you. Listen, I'm just going to force everybody. I'm so sick of nobody talking. I'm just going to force everybody to talk to me. And the one that can't think of it, then we're going to have a quiz. Okay. Well, um, okay, I guess I didn't realize that they were already, like, was it they were already engaged when she, like, the angel came here. I didn't realize that they were already engaged. I thought it was just kind of random they got put together after that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I thought it was cool how they had like, uh, the book talked about like the spiritual union of their marriage, of Mary Absolutely. and Joseph's marriage. I thought that was really cool. Um, <clears throat> when Joseph was picked with the best staff, mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting. That's cool. That that's um, apocryphal, but that's cool. And then uh, who was it that broke his staff and like? <laughs> I can't remember his name. Start with the J. Joseph. There was one guy that was like really jealous that. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember yeah. the name That's bad. Yeah. Let's just move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really liked how he never, like, he he was like, I can't, I'm not worthy of partaking in this mystery. That, like, he knew something was, he knew Mary was pregnant, but he didn't, like, get upset. He was like, well, this is so beautiful. Like, wow. Like that's just so cool. Like I never really thought that. I didn't really realize that he didn't know. Right? Did, did anybody? Did anybody like? When you, you're like, this isn't real. <laughs> you know, like, like that. No guy would do this. You know, yeah. like that's how amazing Joseph is. You know, like in the midst of it, he he feels not that he's like let down. Like he's like, this is so far beyond me yeah. that I can't be part of this. Mm -hmm. That's a totally different way to look at it. Um. I just found it interesting. I, didn't, I knew Joseph like worked with his hands a lot, but I didn't know like how good of a carpenter he was. And I guess he, he really took pride in uh, his quality of work over the amount of money he would make. Good. And he was just you know kind of serving God with his talent. Right. And he throws his whole. And it's something that we're losing. And you know, and I don't think it's the fault. I don't. I don't know how much of the fault of humanity it is, as it is technology. You know, I mean, technology is just replacing mankind. I think it's. Is it? Is it, um, 1987. Have you read that book? 84. Huh? 1984. 1984. <laughs> yeah, that's two tonight. <laughs> I believe. Yeah, 1984. When, when they're talking about the Ford assembly line, how it replaced the person, right? And, and I think that technology is taking away the craftsmanship of humanity. You know, when they, I think it was, what was it? He said they, man used to put as much work into building a chair as they did into building cathedrals. You know, so put their whole self into it. I just had a question about uh, chapter six that he was predestined when when he was talking about Judas, like how he had to betray Jesus, and you said no, he had a choice. Did Joseph have a choice, or was like did God design him only for this? And like, well, that's I mean, really have a here, choice here's the thing: Are you predestined to heaven? Agabus. Mm. No, Jay. Yeah, <clears throat> we're all predestined to heaven. Joseph was predestined to be the the foster father of the Son of God. Could he have chose against it? Yeah. You're doing the same with Judas. You know, even if you do say he was predestined to be the, the betrayer, he could have betrayed, but could he have turned against that and moved towards mercy? Yeah. And ultimately, as we talked about last class, been one of the greatest saints ever in the church. So yeah, Joseph was predestined. Mary was predestined to be the mother of God. She could have said no. You know? So yeah, I'll, I'll even let that slide, even though you asked me a question. <laughs>
Um, I thought it was interesting how he left Mary when she was going to have the baby. When, what's that? When she was like having the baby, he left. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Absolutely. Like in all the movies and stuff, he's always like, Again, the humility of Joseph, like, I'm not, if it did happen this way, I have no right to even be there, <laughs> right, when it happened. There's actually a really cool scene in the, it's in the, when I say apocryphal writings, do you know what that means? So there's the canon of scripture, okay? The canon of scripture, and everybody, you know, it, it kind of cracks me up a little bit, because, you know, there is this movement about sola scriptura, only the Bible, you know, forget about the church, the Catholic church, you know, but my part of me is, which came first, the church or the Bible? The church. And then who chose the canon of Scripture? Who made the Bible what the Bible is? The Catholic Church did. So Sola Scriptura doesn't make any sense. Because once you say Sola Scriptura, you are automatically saying Sola Ecclesia, only the church. Because the church, and, and you know, they, they said, how did they decide which books to keep, which books to not keep? Well, that's a fair question. What we say is, is Jesus gave the Holy Spirit... To his priests and his bishops and what you know, the magisterium, that's what we call the governing body of the church. And they made choices, guided by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you ever has anybody read the apocryphal writings? Because the apocryphal writings are everything that was kind of like thrown out of the canon. Where the church they, they unanimously agreed, like this, no. <laughs> no, <laughs> this ain't right. If you've ever read it, you get you know, I, they make movies about this crap all the time. They're like, you know, the church is like trying to hide the identity of Jesus. And, you know, like, church is like, no, it's here. It's stupid. Read it. <laughs> you know, like, there's just really weird stuff that they write about. Like, one of them was <clears throat> Jesus was a little kid and he was building a sandcastle and, and John the Baptist was there. Because they would have grown up together, you know, and they're like playing around and stuff. Like, there's this other kid and, like, the kid, like, kicks over the sandcastle and Jesus, like, touches him and the kid dies. And Mary comes over, she's like, Jesus, don't do that. He's like, oh, whatever, and he kicks the kid and he wakes back up. You know, like, <laughs> I, like that just doesn't fit in line with who Jesus is, you know? So, like, that, that's what the apocryphal writing is. But there is one called the, the, the Proto-Evangelium of St. James. And this one, they spent a ton of time debating whether this should be in the canon or not. And the East, you know, there's two, church, two, type, two sides of the church, the Eastern Church and the Western Church. And there's a, there was a split between the two. The Eastern Church says that, in fact, this should be part of Scripture. The West says it shouldn't because the West has the Pope, and the Pope has a succession, and Jesus gave the keys to Peter. We side with the West, right? That that's where the Holy Spirit is. That the East has elements of truth and sanctification, but it doesn't have the fullness. So it doesn't have the right to make that call. Anyway, in the Proto-Evangelium of James, there is this, there's this point when Joseph goes in, right? She's going to have the baby, and he leaves, and he's out, and all of a sudden, it's, it's a cool little, you should really read it. The first five chapters of the Proto-Evangelium of James are what are debated, because they're really neat. It's, it tells about how Mary, uh, you know, her whole life, it tells about Joseph being chosen through the staff, all these things. So that's what he's drawing from. And, uh, but he goes out, and all of a sudden, he's like walking around, and it says, and all of a sudden, Joseph looked, and he saw, like, a deer or something, and the deer stopped moving, the water stopped moving, the air st or the wind stopped blowing. So it's at the moment of the birth of the Son of God, all creation, all time, stops. So it's kind of, it's really, it, it's really good for, like, it can help you, like, pray through some of the mysteries of, of what Joseph experienced and all this stuff. But, yeah, so he's, he is really pushing the fact that Joseph understood what he was doing. I think way too often we think that Joseph was just like this, 
<laughs> this bumbling idiot, but like he really knew and he didn't feel worthy to be there, right? Yeah. Next. Um, I like the part about um, when he was talking about how Joseph probably, or might have died, you know, like that he knew that he was going to get in the way of Jesus's mm-hmm. um, ministry. And stuff. Yeah. Um, I found it interesting when he was talking about um, his decision to um, leave Mary, that he was doing it to, that he would do it to preserve her dignity and he would take all the blame. I know, that's insane. That's a hell of a man. I thought it was interesting when they talked about Joseph's like family history and how he's basically born prince, but yet he was satisfied being in Nazareth. Yeah, carpenter. Yeah, I mean he's up he's up the royal line. Yeah. It was kind of cool and like relatable most of my life of our lives that when he found out that Mary was pregnant, that he you know thought about leaving and just couldn't get himself to do it like multiple times, and then the angel came, so it's kind of like. Or how important it is to be a man or a woman of prayer so when those times come, you don't just make a rash decision. That you actually like go to God and say, I'm, I'm ready to leave. I can't take this. This is, this is a huge struggle. I am, I'm at a loss right now. You have to do something. Because that's what, I mean, Joseph really was, you know, I'm, I'm unworthy of this. I don't want to be part of this. I don't understand it. God, if you want this, you're going to have to show me. And then we have to have the faith, like Joseph had, that God is really going to do something. And then we have to keep our eyes open and look for it. Because often when we're in those positions, all we see is the negative, right? To start saying, okay, i got to keep my eyes open and see what he says. Because God works in the ordinariness of life. That's something you should learn from the story of Jesus Christ, you know, like how many years did he work miracles? Three. How many years did he live a normal life? Thirty. I mean, God is trying to teach us something. That holiness comes through everyday ordinary life. That was interesting, like how much uh, importance they put into like carpenters and stuff like that, and how important they were at the time, and Absolutely. How, how revered they were. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, it wasn't like some podunk job, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and that he, and that he wasn't necessarily just a carpenter, right? He didn't just work with wood. He could have worked with all types of stuff. That was interesting when they talked about the fleshy desires and how because they didn't have these, they had no anxiety or bitterness mm-hmm. in their relationship. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> I just thought it was like being unique how they always referred to it, like Joseph and Mary as one. Mm-hmm. Like they were like united. Like they would talk about it in the church or something as like one unity. Yeah, heart and mind, man. That's I mean that's Genesis, right? A man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. And kind of how like the part of how <coughs> Eve gave Adam the apple, mm-hmm. but Mary, who was like the second Eve, gave. Jesus to Joseph, which was like the reverse. Right. Well, there's so many times, you know, like the interplay between Adam and Eve and Jesus and Mary is so clear, so many times. And that's why so often when Jesus refers to his mother, what does he call her? Woman. Woman. You know? I I just, I never call my mom woman. Woman! (laughs) Leave me alone! But it's because he's constantly saying that I'm the new Adam, she's the new Eve, and we're going to show you what humanity was supposed to be like and what you can get back to. 
I was going to kind of say the same thing. I guess I kind of always overlooked Mary and Joseph as a union. Mm-hmm. And I never really understood that maybe Joseph actually really did love Mary, like a wife. Yeah. That could really suck up to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I found it interesting that in Matthew's Gospel they named Joseph's father Jacob, but in Luke's Gospel it was Eli. Mm-hmm. And I guess I really never knew that he had two different fathers or the biological one and then the adoptive father. Right. I mean, like, if you, for men, I think, you know, it'd be like, well, that sucks. You know, like, you know, like, but, but in this, in the sense that that shows how shallow men we can be, you know, that in fact that there was something so much more glorious, more beautiful, more divine going on that it actually brought, it made Joseph more of a man. 
not less of a man. We get in such a sex-saturated culture that, like, if that was taken out of your marriage, like, frick, marriage would be worthless. That's because we have no clue what marriage is about, you know? It's just so we, I need to apparently give myself to this woman so I can have sex with her, you know? And what if that was taken away? You should still be able to love in a very pure and authentic way. Because love is an action, it's not just a feeling. I thought it was kind of cool how um, they put such an emphasis on being hardworking and having a profession that it's that even the Pharisees, like when they were 12, they still picked up a profession even though they were going to go into the close church at that time. Yeah. Um, I thought it was really interesting because uh, I just never really thought about it. Um, the fact that Mary still referred to Joseph, Joseph as father when, um, you know, talking to Jesus, um, and just kind of that weird place that Joseph is put in where, he, uh, like the book was talking about, he's not really the adopted father in the full sense of adopted, but he's also not the natural father in the full right. sense of natural. And he's in a difficult place, <laughs> right? A very difficult place. And the fact that, you know, Mary refers to him all the time as that, but Jesus doesn't. Jesus, when Joseph said, you know, Mary says, did you not know your father and I would be looking for him, be worried about you? You know, Jesus is like, you're not my dad. <laughs> you know, I'm like, you realize what I did? <laughs> you're not my dad? That's all I get? You know, so yeah, he's in a very, uh, a very confusing place. And in the midst of that, he's still faithful, still obedient. Well, I like how it said that Joseph loved Jesus like a son, but worshipped him like a god, you know, like how difficult that balance would be as being his foster father and having to like raise him as a human, but still understand that he is God. And the fact that you can't tell anybody. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, if Joseph, I mean, at the, at, at the birth, he's like holding Jesus and he's like... This is it. Like, this is what all of humanity has been waiting for. And I can't tell anybody. Like, God has to reveal this message. That's why, like, you know, when it said, you know, Mary didn't feel like she, because she, remember, she could have just told Joseph. But she didn't. Because she said, if an angel told me, and God told me, then God can tell him. I don't have the right to, to, to make that message known. And same with Joseph. Like, he's like, I can't tell anybody about this. God himself has to tell the world about who he is. But frick, you're just standing there and you're holding the bridge of the covenants, the fulfillment of the prophets, the God in the flesh. I mean, I don't know. It would. I try to think about that, like just holding. You know, and then and here's the crazy part. We do it. When we put out our hands to receive the Eucharist, to receive them on the you're receiving God. And everybody's like, oh, if I would have just been Joseph, you know, I'd have been a holy man. Well, you, you got even better every day. And you can tell people about him, too. You know? Good. That was easy. See, that wasn't so hard. You guys all had good answers. You can feel free to, you know, share a little bit more. That's good. I have a question. Yeah. So in, like, the very final chapter, it talked about how... Like, the child was under the care of the mother until they reached the age of five, and then they would, like, the father would kind of take over as, like, their teacher and teaching them about the law and about Moses and the prophets. How much was Joseph actually able 
like teach Jesus if well, we... That's a good question, you know, and that, that dives into Christology, which we really don't have a lot of time to talk about. But, you know, Jesus, he was like us in everything but sin. So did he have to learn? Did he have to use knowledge? Yes, in his divinity, but not in his humanity. So this is, this is the whole thing, you know, like, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, you know, when, when Jesus sees a rock, how does he move the rock? Well, he has one, he can move it in two ways. He can go up and pick up the rock and move it, or he can just look at it and say, move, and the rock moves. So you can either tap his human nature or his divine nature. But, and this is the mystery of the incarnation and the hypostatic union. We don't know how this all works, but for some reason, he would, he would, what, what would be the right, like, um, what's that called? Suppress. Suppress. He would suppress the divine nature so his humanity could receive the fullness of who we are. You know, could, did Jesus know what a 57 Chevy was? Yeah. In his divine nature, he did. In his human nature, he had no idea because the only way a human nature can learn is through acquired knowledge. And so in a real way, Joseph taught Jesus, so did Mary, how to pray, which is just bizarre. You're teaching God how to pray in his human nature. So he's, he's, he's the object of his own prayer, which is kind of crazy too to think about. But yeah, so he had to acquire knowledge. You know, did he know how to build a chair? Yeah, in his divine nature. In his human nature, he had no clue. Right, and, and, and again, we have to realize that the body and the soul are one thing, right? So it's not like you can just speed up the process. So as a three-year-old, you know, he's still gonna, you know, do little things that are dumb. Because he doesn't have the fullness of the human nature yet in the sense of reason. Because his brain isn't fully developed, if you will. But something that's more interesting for me than that is, you, remember, you know why we were, we were talking about how a woman has to let go of the son? You know, in ancient cultures, they did that. So he's like, all right, come with dad now. You're going to learn what it means to be a man. You know, now, how many, guys, how many dads do that? Where they take their kid, and they're like, all right, you're coming with me. Where are we going? I'm going to teach you how to be a man. We're going to take a trip every year, you know, a 10-day trip, dad and his son, or sons. And then another trip with him and his daughter. I have a couple buddies that do that. They take a week trip every year, one with their sons and one with their daughters. This is a special time with dad. Mom isn't along. Dad takes care and, you know, he teaches them how to love, what it means to be a good man, what they should look for. And for the guys, he takes them out hunting, fishing. He takes them, you know, whatever they want to do. Where do you guys want to go? What do you want to do? And we're going to do it together, just dad and the boys or dad and the girls. So that's something, too, you know, there's this, there's this break that a lot of women in the modern day and age can't make. I don't have a marker. Does anybody know where my markers are? Got it? No, that's a Sharpie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's well good. Leave me alone. Well, this sucks. Anyway, okay, well I guess I'm not ready. So, good. St. <clears throat> Joseph's a hell of a man. We're gonna talk a little bit more about him. But first, I wanna look at, like, a quality definition of masculinity, real masculinity. Okay? The, the patriarch of Venice, Venice, Cardinal Scola, he once said this, and I think it, it really captures in one sentence the difference between masculinity and feminine. Men receive love by giving love. Men receive love by giving love. <clears throat> and women give love by receiving love. 
So men receive love by giving love. Women give love by receiving love. And this is, this is true on, on a number of levels. On the first level is going to be the physiological level. Okay? <clears throat> so the, just the natural bodily... So men are meant to give, women are meant to receive. Okay? That is what Cardinal Scola is saying. And by giving, that's how men not only feel love, but give love. And women, by receiving, that's not only how they receive love, but they also give love. Does that make sense? So women receive, guys give. Good. So on the physiological level, this is the, some of the stuff I'm using here is St. John Paul II and the theology of the body. On the physiological level, he says, we can see that men, by their very... By, the, by their biological makeup, are meant to give. That's what they do. And it, he, he uses the sexual act. Now try to, you know, we try to stay as, keep our brains in the right state of affairs here, but in the sexual act, the man initiates and gives himself. In the sense that he gives his, him whole, his whole self, body and soul. So the initiation by the man and the giving of the gift to the woman, the woman receives that gift into her body. So by her very nature, by her physio physiological makeup, she is receptive. The man gives, the woman receives. And then out of that comes new life, which then the woman gives back to the man. Do you understand what I'm saying? Or do I need to get more graphic? Okay? The very sexual act Man is giving, he initiates the gift, the woman receives the gift in her body, and out of that love between the two, she reciprocates by giving back life to him. So it's, uh, he's saying just if we look at the body, you know like Adam when he sees Eve for the first time, he's like, wow. And he's like, hey, her body makes sense. Like, it fits together with mine. Am I graphic enough? Do I need to get more graphic? <laughs> they fit together. They work. They're meant to do this. Okay? So on the physiological. But they are also, this, this, this men giving, women receiving, is also on the psychological level. And one of the things I say on the psychological level is one of the fastest ways for a woman to frustrate a man. One of the fastest ways for a woman to frustrate a man. One of the fastest ways for a woman to frustrate a man is not to appreciate his sacrificial gifts. One of the fastest ways for a woman to frustrate a man is not to allow, or not to appreciate his sacrificial gifts to her. <clears throat> so for example, this is, this is not just culture. This is human nature. Like when a man takes a, and sadly enough, this is, this is changing a little bit. When a man takes a woman out on a date, he is expected to pay. 
not because it's some cultural norm, but the man is saying, you're worth it. I want to, sh I want to give of myself here to show you that you're worth it. And if the woman, the woman can't receive that and feel good about herself because he's actually paying and not feel like, oh, now I have to give him something later on. Do I have to get more graphic? To just receive it as a gift, that means something to a man. When a man holds the door, I'm just talking real little stuff here. When a man holds the door for a woman, sadly enough, we're losing that as well. You know? That that means something, and the woman should just receive that. The men are, that that's how men show their love, is by giving. Now, on the contrary, also write this down. One of the quickest ways for a man to frustrate a woman <clears throat> one of the quickest ways for a man to frustrate a woman is not to allow her to receive him into her life. One of the fastest ways for a man to frustrate a woman is to not allow her to receive him into her life. This is why, fellas, you're gonna, if, you, if you haven't experienced this already, you will. You probably experienced it with your mothers. You will experience it with your wife. They're going to say, how was your day? They don't want to hear, fine. They want to hear about your day because they want to be part of your day. They want to be received into your life, every aspect. That's why they just constantly ask us how we're feeling and what we did and tell me more and we go insane. <laughs> I do it <laughs> with my mom especially, you know. She's like the woman in my life, and she calls, and I'm like, you know, I'm on my way to a meeting, she's like, hey. Or first, first she calls, she leaves a message, she's like, you gotta call me as soon as you can. Click. And I'm like, frick, like my brother died. You know, and I'm like, what's up? And she's like, oh, how's your day going? Fine, what do you want? Well, I didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt. Well, now she makes me feel bad, you know, like, I didn't mean to, I'm, no, you didn't interrupt me, tell me. She's like, well, I was just wondering, you know, how you thought the talk you gave went. And I was like, it went really well. Let me tell you about it. Oh, okay. <laughs> she wants to be involved. Woman wants to be involved in man's life. That's why they constantly are asking and wanting to be in our lives. Because they really want to be in our lives. So it's important to know that. That the quickest way a woman, you can, the husband can frustrate the woman is not to let her into his life. And it's one of the quickest ways you'll break communication too, okay? Number three, we see this men giving, women receiving in the very proposal of marriage. The actual right, I like to call it, of marriage. <clears throat> what happens? What is every woman in her dreams, what is she waiting for? Huh? Well, more than that. Her wedding day. Her we well, even be before the proposal. the proposal. She's waiting when the guy goes, don't get too freaked out. When the guy goes like this, and she's like, ah! you know, like it's here. 
<laughs> and it's like everything, everything is. And and what does the guy do? He ties his shoe. Yeah, no doubt. No. Oh, my shoe is untied. Why are you crying? What does the guy do? He presents a ring. The the man is giving a gift to the woman, a very costly gift, to show her how much she means to him. The man is giving in order to receive love. And the woman, you know, how weird would it be if the woman's like, oh, I got you a watch. <laughs> you know, like, you'd be like, what are you doing, you know? Like, no, the, the woman isn't expected to give anything in return. Her gift to him in return is what? Yes. Her yes. So the woman, by receiving the gift that the man has given, <coughs> then gives her love back to him just in the reception. Women, all women have to do is just receive love. This is the problem, though. They get in the way. They try to take on too much. Ephesians chapter 5. St. Paul's letter to Ephesians chapter 5. Write that down. You should know it. I want you to know the whole chapter. Read the whole chapter. It's a wonderful chapter. <clears throat> but there's a part in there. Actually, does anybody have a, Get your Bible off. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 5. That's the New Testament, not the Old just throwing that out there. Here you go. Why don't you have your Bibles? Where are your Bibles? Nice size. Christian also. You want, I have a jingle that will help you remember St. Paul's letters. You want to hear it? It's great. I made this up in seminary so I could pass the test. <laughs> And maybe let's see what I can get. Okay. So these are all of his letters in order. Uh, Romans, 1 to Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, and Hebrews. Yeah. Clap for me. <laughs> you know how long that took to come up with? That ain't easy. Do you want us to read it? Yeah, read it. Go ahead. Ephesians 5. The, the, the part on marriage. Yeah, 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 that part right there. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay. Wives be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. Okay, read that again. Wives be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. Okay, read that one more time. <laughs> Where the husband is the head of the wife. Okay, read that again. Where the husband is the head of the wife. Just one more time. <laughs> Where the husband is the head of the wife. Okay, read that. Read those two verses one more time. Okay, read that. Read those two verses one more time. <laughs> I didn't ask you to repeat anything. <laughs> Just as Christ is the head of the wife, 
Okay, good. So, what is, what is everybody here right away? I think one of the women here. Wives of Right, wives, and I, the, I like the better translation is wives be submissive to your husbands. I think that's just, you know, wives be submissive to your husbands. And then it says, husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Jump on the second says that this all has to do with how we understand submission. Okay? Because the first line, read the first line again. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, so St. Paul is saying right away, there isn't this wives be submissive and be worthless and let men walk all over you and serve them in everything. He's saying, boom, you're on the same platform. Be submissive to one another out of love for Christ. Not out of love for one another, because you're not going to always love one another. Be submissive out of, uh, uh, to one another out of love for Christ. Then it says, wives, be submissive to your husbands. He says if we look at the Latin root of submissive, it's submissio. What does sub mean? Under, right? Submarine, underwater. Submissio, under. Missio in Latin means? Mission. So what is Paul telling women to do? Put yourselves under the mission of your husband. Receive his mission. Receive it. And what's the mission of the husband? Love the wife. As Christ loved the church. That's important. Because if it just says love your wife, what the hell does that mean? Paul qualifies it. He says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He died for her. What is man's mission? To die for his wife. And what is the woman to do? Receive it. Man is to give. He is to sacrifice his entire being, just like St. Joseph did, for the good of his wife and his family. And the woman is to receive that. And by receiving that, she is loving him back. You guys, it's so simple. We have confused love. Oh, if we confused love. It's so simple. And women have got this just stupid idea of femininity and I should even say feminism that they think they have to be like guys, like they have to be the initiators they have to be the ones that give if you try to do that you will screw not only yourself up, you will screw the man up too and next week and the following week we're going to talk about women proper and what femininity is because if I had to say if, if, what does the modern culture say femininity is Power would be one. Quality. I don't even think equality. Power. Equal. Yeah, she said equality. Pow equality. Power. Power. Huh? Basically, it's just power if it's not equality. It's power, but I think if you said like. You know, like, independence. In, independence. If you, like, who are the, like, one, the women that are the most feminine, the most, like, ones that are ever, they're the women of the world. Like, what is the quality of all those women? They control everything. They're manipulative. They're manipulative. <laughs> what gives them so much power? What gives them so much power? A manipulation, ability to manipulate. Huh? They're hot. Yeah. Femininity 
is sexy. It's hot. That's what a woman is. For the secular world, to be feminine is to be hot. To be desired. To be everything to the man. And to, and to be so hot that you control him with your hotness. That's what femininity is. And if that is what we have come to, and that's what you're striving for, and when you get ready in the morning is to look sexy, to look hot, to be desirable, you are screwed up. And it screws everything else up, too. We're going to talk more about that later. We're on St. Joseph. I just had a little, a little, a little trailer, you know, for the upcoming lecture next week. But it's good. Got to tear down the woman, and then we're going to build her back up. It's like we tore down a man, and we're trying to build him back up now. So, men have to have to love as Christ loves the church. And it, it's all in this. We, you see it so beautifully on, in the marriage proposal. Think about this. How about weddings? What's the first thing that a newly married couple does when they get to the reception? No. <clears throat> no. They what? Eat cake. Eat cake. And what does everybody want to see? Yeah. The groom takes a piece of the cake and feeds his bride. Now, this has a, this has a double meaning. Number one, again, guess what the guy's doing? Giving. What's the woman doing? Receiving. But listen to this. We believe in, 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 in the Catholic Church that the Eucharist, the Mass, right, is God's wedding banquet in which he feeds his bride with etern the, the bread of life. Think about, now this is a little more traditional, but when people used to receive on the tongue in Mass, you know where that, that tradition in weddings came from? It came from the Catholic Mass. That the priest said, body of Christ, and he fed the bride. And so it was mimicked in the reception at the wedding because wet marriages are a depiction of God's love for his church. That's what all of you are going to do when you get married. You're going to be a physical representation of God's love for his church. And so God is symbolized in the man feeding the bride, who is the church, with cake. The man gives, the woman receives. This is not just some stupid, this is what people, and it has to do with the work thing, the work aspect, right? When we were talking about people just don't know what they, they don't even care about their work. They just do it. They don't put anything into it. One of my favorite things, if you guys ever get to go to Italy, when you go to a restaurant, almost all of the waiters are 60-year-old men or maybe older, and they have been working there for a long damn time. And these guys take so much pride in their work, you know, when they come out and they, have, and they are convinced that they have the best pasta in Rome. And, you know, they'll come out and, you know, he just walks up and he's like, Buon appetito, huh? You know, he walks, he doesn't even ask if you want anything because you're not going to need anything. That's how good that is. You don't need cheese, you don't need salt, you don't need pepper. That is the best freaking pasta you're ever going to eat. So I don't, we don't even need to talk anymore. And, you, you know, when, you, when the waiter comes by, you know, can I get the certo, certo, signore, certo. You know, it's, everything is just smooth and... They, and if anything goes wrong, they are horrified. <laughs> it's so awesome. I love it. They're just horrified. And then you don't have to tip. 
They don't, they're not giving you service because they expect something. They're giving you service because they want you to enjoy your night. That's how much pride they take in their, in, in, in their work. I was a server. I don't know if any of you were servers. It's like the worst freaking job in the world. You have to put on this face for everybody. And they can basically tell you whatever they want, and you just, yes, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. My brother actually one time had a guy, he had eggs. He, he brought out, it, it was a breakfast, he brought out the eggs, and the eggs were kind of like, they weren't, it was scrambled eggs, they were a little, little soupy, you know? And the guy threw the plate on him. You know, I mean, like, as a, as a server, and what do we, the whole time we're like, oh, let me take care of that. I'll clean that up. Did you puke? Let me clean that up for you. No problem. This is what we do. This is our job. And what are you doing? Why are you doing all this? For a tip. For a tip. You don't give a damn about the people. I didn't. Maybe you did. In fact, most of the people I hated. Because I was just pissed that I was working. <laughs> and they were here. You don't like it, especially like in Italy. Again, I was a cook too. And there's always that jerk. So we close at nine o'clock. There's always that jerk that comes in at 8.58. It's like, oh, you know, I would just love a steak tonight. And you're like, oh, would you? Gosh, that's just what I want to do at nine o'clock. You know, you know I get off at nine, but don't worry about that. You know, and you go and get, in Italy, you come in at like 10 o'clock at night. They'll turn the damn grills back on for you. You guys want to eat? Yeah, let's eat. They're so excited about it because they just pour themselves into their work. So yeah, man, that, that's something that we're really losing. Okay? Anyway, that was a long one. So just remember, men give love and women receive that love and give it back. That is a clear definition of masculine and feminine. That can be flushed out in a lot of different ways, which we're hopefully been doing and will continue to do. There are two more things that I want the women especially to know in this class about men. So two things, maybe you know this, but it's really, 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 really important. Two things that women need to know about men. The first one, men need to be respected more than they need to be loved. <clears throat> men need to be respected more than they need to be loved. <clears throat> if, I don't care if you're like giving your husband back rubs and foot massages and kissing him and all this stuff. If in public you berate him and disrespect him, you're going to lose him. Men need to be respected. <clears throat> okay? And just like I, I, the thing that got me thinking about this was like sports, right? How does a coach coach well? You know, does a, does a good coach just disrespect a player and make them feel like an idiot, like they can never do anything right? No, they pick out the thing that they're good at and they encourage that. And then while they're encouraging that, it begins to fix everything else around it. So being able to pick one thing, I mean, if you can't find one thing in your future husband, maybe you never should have married him, okay? One thing that you can just build up and encourage, you disrespect him, You, I'm telling you, I do a lot of marriage counseling too. So this is after, not marriage prep, marriage counseling. This is when they're in trouble, okay? One of the clearest signs that they are not going to make it is while we're talking, if the woman disrespects her husband. 
in front of me. Because not only, if she's doing it in front of me, guarantee she's doing it in front of everybody else. Because now the man who already feels a little less like a man because he's sitting before a priest talking about his marriage is falling apart. In the midst of that, this man sitting before another man, his wife disrespects him, berates him. Oh, it's like a dagger in a man's heart. Disrespect. So always remember that. Just try to find something where you can encourage. Right? Find one thing you can encourage. Number two, men need to provide. Men need to provide. We are hardwired to be providers. And again, you can sit back and you're like, well, you're just making all this up. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm taking this. This is all biblical. Right? What was Adam's first job? No. Huh? No. Huh? Kind of, yeah. To cultivate the earth. Right? To cultivate and subdue the earth. So his first thing is to what? work. Adam, you do, you work, you till the garden, you provide for Eve. That's your job. You're the provider because men give. This isn't some chauvinistic understanding of masculinity. It's based on this principle that men give, women receive. Now, again, don't get me wrong. It's not like women can't provide for the house and for the family and for all these things. I'm just saying that the most ordered type of marriage is where the man is the main provider. Because if he's not, he feels like he's failing. He feels like he's failing. You know? So if you have like a, a, a woman who's, you know, a doctor and, and her husband is like a, I don't know, an archaeologist or something. You know, like, I don't know, something that's, you know, a teacher maybe. A grade school teacher, a high school teacher. That's hard on a man. And he would rather that she stays home with the kids. And he, he might not say this, but this is built into us as men. He would rather work three jobs and make sure that he is providing for his family than to sit at home and let his wife provide. Now, are there times and places where that can switch? Yes, there are. But I'm talking, this is the, the overarching understanding of masculinity and femininity. That men need to provide. And they are very rarely thanked for it. I don't know if you've seen Chris Rock. He's, he's a little dirty, <clears throat> but he's kind of funny. I, I like the guy. He, uh, he has this thing on, on daddies, right? And he's like, he's like, you know, he's like, I'm talking about real daddies. He's like, yeah, he's like, there's a few of them left out there in the black community. <laughs> he's like, real men. He's like, I'm talking about the real daddies. He's like, they never get any respect. He's like, Mama, always get the respect. You know, when Daddy comes home, the kids aren't like, Wow, Daddy, thanks for the heat in the house. <laughs> you know, it's like, man, there's a lot of light in here so I can do my homework. You know, thanks for paying the bills, Daddy. <laughs> you know, and then Bill Cosby, it's hard to even bring up his name because he has such a bad rap now, but in one of his things, he has this, he tells this, this story, you know, like he has this little boy, little boy's getting ready, and he's like, I want my boy to play football, right? And he's like, I'm going to teach him how to play football. So I take him outside. I said, come up, your son comes at me and bam, I throw him to the ground. I say, get up. And he's crying. I say, come at me again. You got to learn how to take a hit. Bam, I set him down. 
I think it's about three, four more years, he starts to hit me and it hurts a little bit, you know? And he's, he's in high school and he's knocking me over and he's running 50 touchdowns and I stand up, that's my boy, right? And he comes up and, he's, and he just goes on this litany of stuff. And he's like, and then it's the national championship in college and he dives and he makes the final catch and he scores the touchdown, wins the game, and he turns to the camera and says, hi, mom. <laughs> he's like, how is that fair, right? Because it's always, it's always the mother, but the man is the one that just wants to provide and provide and provide and give and give and give. And so this, we got to remember, and, and, and a lot of it, this is the reason why I had you read Joseph, because a lot of it, fellas, is hidden. You're not going to get recognition for it. And you shouldn't seek recognition for it. You do it out of love. Love loves for love's sake. I want to make a t-shirt that says that. That's my quote, by the way. I can't, well, Jesus came up with it through me at some point, but... I said it teaching one day, and I was like, that is a hell of a quote. Love loves for love's sake. <clears throat> Doesn't do it to count and say like, oh, I did this, you owe me this. It just gives. You tell me one time when Joseph came to Mary and said, Mary, step it up. Who's the one working all the time? Who's the one providing all the time? And you're out, you know, causing me scandal. I gotta put up with that too. You know? He doesn't. You never hear him complain once. He never says one time. God, this is so unfair. <clears throat> so, we, gentlemen, we learn how to be men by giving and giving and giving and giving of ourselves out of love for those that we care about. This is why there is such a lacking of masculinity. Because so few men actually give and sacrifice of themselves for the good of others. They take. This is just what Adam, or Adam did, right? He took. Eve took. It was all about me. It was all about myself. Okay? All right, really quickly, I want to look at Simon Peter. Because I think Simon Peter is a good understanding. And again, remember, ladies, this is more for the men, but I think you can learn something about men through this. And what I want to go over is, you know, Peter was, Peter's an interesting, I think he's one of the most lovable characters in the scripture because he reminds us so much of us. You know, he makes all these great decisions and does all these great things, and then he just fails miserably, terribly. Right? And Jesus called him a rock. You know, I think that was kind of a joke, kind of like a tongue-in-cheek sort of thing. And all the apostles are kind of like snickering, like, Peter, a rock. Like, he's like a twig, you know? But he, he, he embodies masculinity in this sense of just like, rah, you know, in your face, but also... He understands that he is focused on Jesus and Jesus alone, and that is, that's his everything, okay? So, I want to look at what's called the rise and the fall of Peter. Sorry, the fall and the rise of Peter. So, the fall and the resurrection. In the fall, there are five steps, okay? And I think this is five steps and pretty much... All men's lives, okay? The first step happens in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? What does Jesus say to Peter, James, and John? Right, well, and then when they don't, he says to them what? Could you not stay awake? Could you not stay awake and pray for one hour? So Peter stops praying. This is the first. This is not only the destruction of who Peter is, it is the destruction of his masculinity. The first thing, fellas, if you're not praying, it's going to be damn hard to be a really good man. It can be done. 
but it makes it a lot easier if you're praying. But Peter stops praying. Then what happens? <clears throat> what happens next in the... It's going to be... You know, we're going to kind of... This is great. We just got out of Holy Week, so we all know the Passion. The story of the Passion. So what happens next after... Yeah, right. So Peter... So this is what we call... Peter, after he stops praying, step number two, he substitutes action for contemplation. So action for prayer. So instead of praying, he starts becoming really active. I'm going to show everybody I'm a man. Watch what I can do. And again, you know, I think, I can't remember if I, exp I explained this to you, but I was just so amazed. It was like two lengths ago when I realized that, you know, when he cut off his ear, it was because he was aiming for his head. Peter wanted to kill this guy. So instead of praying, which is the thing that Jesus asked him to do, he decides to take matters into his own hands and force his idea onto God's about what it means to be a man. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, put away your sword, Peter. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. And then what happens? All of a sudden, Peter's like, holy crap. He's not going to fight. This psycho is not going to fight. And what does Peter do? He runs away. So first you stop praying. Then you substitute action instead of relationship with the Lord or prayer. And out of that comes the running away from Jesus. <clears throat> you become afraid of him. He keeps his, but here's, here's the cool thing about Peter. Even though he runs away, he still, he still keeps Jesus in, in eyeshot, right? He runs away, makes sure he's safe, and then he keeps Jesus at a distance. Because he knows what happens. If he gets too close to Jesus, what's going to happen? He's going to die. He doesn't want to die. Peter hates discipline. He hates it. And so he keeps Jesus at a distance. And while Jesus is at a distance, what happens next? No. Nope. How about this section of the room? What happens next? What did she say? <laughs> <laughs> he, de he denies him. It's before the denials. Right before the denials, actually. Talks to those women. Yeah. Around a fire. Okay, he's around a charcoal fire. So he sits and he warms himself. So the fourth step in the fall, you keep Jesus at a distance, fourth step, you go to creature comforts. <clears throat> All right, now Peter's more concerned about staying warm than he is about Jesus himself. So you move to the things of the world to satisfy your masculinity. Now I got to have a big truck. Right? If I have a big truck, I can drink a lot of beer, and I have a lot of women in my life, I must be a man. I have a lot of things. And i got to show other men how manly I am by having more things than they have. And all this time, you're slowly losing the Lord. And once you get to that point, then the fifth step kicks in, which is what? Denial. You deny even knowing him. <clears throat> You sell him for your own selfish 
interest. Here's a crazy part too. When Peter says it, right, the first one, he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And they're like, surely you're a Galilean. We can hear your voice. And he's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Leave me alone. They're like, I saw you with him. You are one of his 12. And he says, I don't know the man. Notice what happened. What did, what did Peter always call Jesus? Lord. God. Now he says, I don't know the man? Jesus is nothing but a man to him? He just confessed him as being the son of God. In his fear, he denies him. He denies even knowing him. And this is the crazy part, you guys. Peter and Judas essentially are the same. Peter denied the Lord. He betrayed the Lord. Almost on a, a greater degree because Jesus entrusted the whole church to Peter. Okay? So if there's five steps in the fall of mankind, or men specifically, there's three steps in the return. Okay? <clears throat> By the way, it's important to know that Peter always feared death. You know? He was always afraid of death. And that, that's good, because we're all afraid of death. So that's, <laughs> that gives me hope. He hated discipline. He was terribly afraid of death. So the return. The return is from John 21. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 21. This is where we see the return. It's really interesting, because it takes quite a while for Peter to fall, but the return is pretty darn quick. Okay? <clears throat> now, if you... Get out John 21. Read John 21. I want the specific... Um, this is such... You could literally... You could pray through this for the rest of your life. Okay? Yeah, just start reading there. Read loudly. <clears throat> After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called... Didymus. The twin. Mine says the twin. Didymus, yeah. Nathaniel of Cana... In Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, have you any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they... They were not able to haul it in for the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his clothes, for he was stripped for work, and sprang into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some fish, some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Keep going. Okay. This is the best part. All right. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
he said to him, Feed my, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you fastened your own belt and walked where you would. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will fasten your belt for you and carry you where you do not wish to go. This he said to show by what death he was to glorify God. And after this he said to him, Follow me. Keep going. Okay. Peter turned and saw following them the disciple whom Jesus loved, who had lain close to his breast at the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. The saying spread about abroad among the brethren that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Okay. There is so much packed into this, you guys, that it's worth going through. <clears throat> okay? So... Peter, Peter is obviously a natural leader, right? He goes, I'm going fishing. The other guy's like, we're coming with you, right? So they, here's the first thing. So when a man has a problem, when he has denied the Lord, he runs from it, okay? He does not like to deal. Men don't like to deal with their problems, period, especially when it comes down to their, their faith. So they know they've denied the Lord. <clears throat> they know they need forgiveness. They know that they've hurt others, that they've let people down, that they've done less than they should have as a man, but they don't want to deal with it. So what do they do? They go work. They go work. Peter goes back to his old job, which is, which is hilarious because Jesus told Peter what? You are no longer going to be a fisherman. You will be a fisher of men. This job is done, Peter. He has his conversion. Peter has his conversion, which is some young men do. All of a sudden, they fall apart. They do some stupid stuff. They deny the Lord. They run away, and then they dive into their work. They dive into their work. And here's the thing. What happens that night? You heard it. We just read it. We just read it. What happens that night? They don't catch anything. Work is never fruitful when a man is running to it instead of dealing with his problems. That's really important. <clears throat> Work is never fruitful when a man is running to it instead of dealing with his problems. <clears throat> this is, by the way, like the number one critique of married women. He works too. And a man knows that he's failing. And so instead of de dealing with it and like talking it out with his wife and starting to like, I don't know, turn back to his faith, he just works harder. If I can just give them more stuff, I will be a man. I will be fulfilling my job of providing. But here's the, here's the fact, fellas. Providing is on a hell of a lot more levels than just material. Okay, We're going to get into that when we talk about Joseph. Providing is on a lot of levels. A man has to provide for his family on a lot of levels. But most of them just boil it down to the economic meaning of providing. Okay? 
So it's never fruitful. Work is never fruitful when you're, do, when you're running to it instead of dealing with your problems. Okay? So while he's there, Jesus appears. I've been to this place, by the way. If you ever get a chance to go to the Holy Land, it's really cool. You can go to the place, and you can see how, like, where the Lord appeared, and it's, it's perfect. Like, it's like the perfect place. And there's this little shore, and you can see where, where Peter, you know, where the boat would have been. Because there's this, there's a, uh, what's it called? A spring that flows into the Sea of Galilee. And right there, it kicks up everything. So fish are there, right? So that's where they would have been. It's right by the spring, right at the outshoot of it. So anyway, he's sitting there. And then what does Jesus say to Peter? Or to the disciples? Do you love me? Do you love me? <laughs> Put it on the other sure. side. No! Oh, someone else talked. Somebody else talked. <laughs> Come on, read through it. Y'all have talked before. Have you any fish? Have you any fish? Good. Did you catch anything? Children, did you catch anything? Now, it's kind of funny because if we remember back to when Peter was first called, right? <clears throat> what does he tell Peter? He says, Put down your nets. Put them out of the deep. And Peter's like, okay. Remember when we talked about it? Like, okay, Jesus. We'll humor you. You know? And now Jesus is on the shore saying, hey, kids. Which <laughs> just is mocking the hell out of him. Children, have you caught anything? And you know, for Peter, it, his heart must have like skipped a beat. And all of a sudden he's like, oh my gosh. Like he asked me this before. Somebody asked me this before. And so Jesus is like, you going to listen to me now, Peter? Remember what happened way back when, when I told you what you were supposed to do, and now you're running from it? And so Peter throws the nets to the other side. Doesn't even question it this time, right? Just throws them. Pulling this huge catch of fish, and then it's like, John is like, it's the Lord. And Peter, who's naked for some reason. I always wondered, you know, <laughs> the naked fisherman, right? Then he, he, he jumps into the water and, like, swims to the shore. And he gets up to the shore, and he's like, it's miraculous catch a fish. He remembers back to when he was first called. And all of a sudden, he's like, it's Jesus, and he's so excited to see his friend. And then he gets up to see his friend, and all of a sudden, he's like, frick. Because if, if Peter was so happy to see Jesus, why didn't he stay there? Does anybody know why? We, we get just a little bit later, it says that when they pulled the fish ashore, they saw something. Charcoal fire. <clears throat> so when Peter comes running up onto the shore, and he's like, Jesus! And all of a sudden he looks and he sees this charcoal fire and he remembers back to what? His denial. You know, it isn't by chance that John wrote it was a charcoal fire. He wasn't like, I wonder what kind of fire that was. I want to, let's say it was charcoal. Because charcoal fire would be a nice fire. You know? Why wasn't it wood? Why was it charcoal? Because Jesus was getting Peter to deal with his freaking problem. That's why he, <clears throat> Peter comes out first. And if Peter was so happy to stay there, why did he go out and bring the fish back in? Why didn't he stay with his best buddy Jesus? Because he saw that fire. And then as Archbishop Sheen, he said that the fires of that charcoal fire were like the fires of hell to St. Peter. Because he realized it was all about the denial. And that Jesus was standing right by the damn fire. And called Peter, come here. So it says after breakfast, right? And for the longest time, you guys, I thought that they were sitting around the fire, right? As they're having this conversation, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? They're not. 
if you look, right, after it says, as it's, it says, uh, give me this. It's just, it's, it's all this little stuff, you guys, in the scriptures. It says this. Peter turned and saw following them the disciple whom Jesus loved. So what are they doing? They're walking. Where are they walking? Away from the fire. So after breakfast, after they're sitting around the fire and he makes Peter feel the pain, makes him squirm a little bit, reminding him about what's going on, he says, Peter, let's take a walk. And they leave the fire behind. And then he says to him, he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. And some of you, I'm sure you know this, but the Greek words are different here. So we have love, 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 right? But in the Greek, it says, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And the Greek word is agape, which means unconditionally. Peter, do you love me unconditionally? And Peter turns back and he says, Lord, you know that I love you. But he uses the word philios, like a brother. And then Jesus says, all right, well then do something about it, Peter. Show me that you love me. You're a man, start giving. Start providing for my church. Feed my sheep. And then he says again, Peter, do you love me? Agape, unconditionally. Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you, philios, as a brother. And this is the most amazing thing. The third one, Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me? Philios. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Philios. That Jesus drops down to his level. But then he says to him, this is the, it, you guys, it's so freaking, this has to be Holy Spirit stuff. <clears throat> he says, when you were younger, you did what you wanted. But when you're older, Somebody else is going to dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And said, he said this about how Peter was going to glorify the Lord by his death. So what is Jesus' plan for Peter? That eventually Peter will love him unconditionally. He'll give his life, which is what happens. When you stay connected to the Lord, he draws you deeper and deeper and deeper. He takes you where you're at. But he wants to draw you all the way to the point of the ultimate sacrifice which is the total gift of self for the good of the ones you love. And in marriage, that can be for your bride, fellas. In the priesthood, that's for my bride. I got a big old woman, she's called the church. <laughs> a big lady, <laughs> a lot of needs. But we, we give ourselves totally. When, like if I'm sitting in my room, I'm like, I don't wanna freaking teach tonight. I'm like, Jesus, I do it out of love for you. Because he says, do you love me? I say, yeah. I'm, not unconditioned. I love you like a brother, Lord. He said, then go feed my sheep. All right, I'm going. And he's slowly drawing me deeper and deeper into that agape, that, that unconditional love. <clears throat> and how, when, when, when Peter's functioning with the Lord, when he's living his masculinity, feeding, suffering, sacrificing, giving of his life, how effective is he? How effective is he? Pretty damn effective. He converts 5,000 people in one homily. I don't think I've converted a single soul in one homily. 5,000! He freaking goes to a beggar who's crippled and says, I have neither silver nor gold to give you, but what I do have, 
I give to you in the name of Jesus, get up. And the guy gets up. When he was walking, they would put crippled people just in his shadow. And they would be healed. This is a real man. But it says that Peter, <clears throat> tradition holds, tradition holds that Peter, when he died, when he was an old man, that he had, he had furrows, they said. So like crevices in his cheeks because of his, his weeping. As he remembered all the time when he denied the Lord. Like that's a dude. You know, but even down to the end, have you guys, do you guys know this? Did I tell you the story of the Kulvadis? Don't mean it. You ever heard of Kulvadis? So, at the very end of his life, Peter, you know, Nero burns Rome, blames the Christians, and they're like, Nero's like, we got to get the Christians, we got to get them on the spotlight. The best way to do that, get their leader. Do you know who their leader? Yeah, it's this guy named Petra, Kefa, whatever his name is. He's the rock. We're supposed to get him. So they go after him. Peter finds out they're coming after him. So what does the rock do? Does he stand his ground and say, bring it on? I'm the rock. No, he runs. He runs out of town. He sneaks out by night and tries to escape down the Via Appia. And as he's walking down the Via Appia, he's, he's kind of got his hood down, you know, he's walking. And all of a sudden, he sees somebody come right past him. And he's like, hey, I know that guy. And he turns, and that's when he says, Quovati Stomine, which means, where are you going, Lord? And it was Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and he said, I'm going to Rome to die again because you won't. Imagine this in cars up here is like. <laughs> you know? And he goes back and dies. It's such a beautiful way, too, right? They say he's crucified upside down. They were going to crucify him normally, like, like Jesus. And he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Savior. So they flipped the cross upside down. It's just like, I mean, it's just. Tell me he isn't like the most lovable man. Even up to the end, you know? And this is why whenever somebody's like, would you ever, you know, would you die a martyr's death? And I'm like, I would like to think so. But man, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm going I'm to try to live my life so when I get to that point, I'll be able to. I don't know if you know this St. Polycarp, which is such an awesome name. <laughs> Polycarp. I mean, whoever thinks of a name like that. <clears throat> but anyway, he said on, he was 80 six I think when he died and they martyred him so they tied him to this pyre like this you know for burning and they were gonna the tradition was is that they would tie the hands and then they would nail them together to fasten the man to the pole so they wouldn't run away once the fire started so they tied him and they were gonna they put the nail on his hand and he said you don't need to nail my hands to the post he said the faith that has, made, has put me here on this pyre will keep me here in order to die and then they said, they, lit, they, they said, you have one last chance. If you deny Jesus, we will let you go. And he said, I have been faithful for 85 years. If you think I'm going to frickin' deny him now, you're crazy. And they lit the fire. And it said that the people that were watching, <clears throat> that he didn't even move. He just stood. And they said as the smoke rose off of his body, it smelled like incense. And his body, instead of burning, began to, like, brown. Instead, it was almost like it was bread being cooked in an oven. And then he died. <clears throat> and the people came and took the body and hailed him away, you know, as a martyr. <clears throat> I like to think that if I can get to that point, if I'm faithful to the Lord, then when I do deny him, fellas, this is a big one, especially for those of you that are Catholic, 
Ladies, for men that you marry that are Catholic, the sacrament of confession. I'm telling you, it is a freaking, all these guys, I hate this. I go, and you know, I'll be at a party or something, and they're like, hey, you need to hear John's confession. And they're like, ah, you know, and everybody's laughing. He's like, oh, no, fuck. it would take way too long. Ah, you know, and I just stand there staring at him until everybody feels really awkward. <laughs> and I'm like, you guys, this isn't funny. You should all be encouraging him to go to confession. And you know what, John? If it takes two hours, I will sit and listen for two hours. This isn't a joke. Men are doing that because they're scared shitless. <clears throat> oh, I'm a, I'm a tough guy. I'm a freaking man. Go tell your sins to the priest. Oh, I couldn't do that. Oh, yeah, you're freaking tough. Can't even admit your own wrongdoings before another man. You're pathetic. Now, look, I know there's fear. I know there's... I, hell, I mean, there's... Now, I don't feel it all. I don't feel any fear when I go into confession. I'm, like, jumping for joy. I'm like, thank God there's confession. Not like people are... You know that, right? We, we priests, we have to go to confession, too. You know, like, we don't... We can't just look in the mirror and just, you know... <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't that be great, though? I absolve me in the name of the Father. Doesn't work like that. I gotta go... And that's why, if a priest is practicing confession... He will be a merciful man in the confessional. I mean, I have no one, like, there's times when you gotta throw down with somebody. And you gotta put them in their place. And you gotta, even if you gotta make them cry so you can jerk them out of somewhere, that will never happen in the confessional. Never. There is nothing but mercy in there. There may be hard questions, there's nothing but mercy in there. So that is the big, what, how does Peter come back? How does he rise to new life? He confesses his sins to Christ. And then Peter's back. And he's back with a freaking vengeance. There ain't nobody getting in Peter's way. Because he knows who he is. He knows his identity as son of the father. Okay? All right, we're going to take a five-minute break. Be back at eight. Ish, and we're gonna talk about Joseph. I don't know how long that's gonna take. Uh, I take till night. It might be earlier. I don't know.